Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you are gracious and merciful, kind and loving towards us. And because this is your character, we know that you are worthy of our praise. Help us to be ever mindful of this and to praise you in the highs and the lows. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Please be seated. It's, it's kind of hard to believe that it's already October. I think I'm slightly in denial of it, and, and possibly because last week I mentioned people kept sending me the wrong dates of things, so maybe it's not October and I'm just really confused. Um, but in all seriousness, throughout October and November, we're going to spend some time looking at the Psalms, and we'll look at the Psalms that we praise God with that Sunday. But in your, in your booklet will also be a nice little half sheet with the ESV version of that Psalm, just for you to refer to, just in case some of the language was confusing, or in some cases, just to give you an updated textual understanding of, of what we're looking at. But you may be wondering, well, why are we looking at psalms? Or maybe you just like to go along for the ride, which is lovely. Um, But we're looking at the psalms for for several reasons. First and foremost, because they contain a depth and beauty of ancient poetry that perhaps is lost on us when we we read through them. They're, They're these deep poetical praises or laments to God. And so on top of that, they're some of the the oldest hymns, if you will, of of praises to God. And since we read them week in and week out, and we read them throughout the week when we gather for the daily offices, we're going to look at the Psalms so that we have this deeper understanding of what they are. But they also would have been the songs of praise that Christ himself would have used when he went in to worship God in the synagogue. And so there's that of equal importance. But finally, they have a Christological nature. In a very real way, they point us to Christ. And sometimes we miss that. We just read them and we're like, well, that was pretty. And we forget the rest about it. But I want us to kind of slow down and start looking at these psalms so we have a deeper understanding of what they're pointing us to. And that that brings us to the final point of why we're doing this. In December, Ronnie, I, I sent Ronnie off on a task, and she's been working really diligently on that. So thank you to Ronnie. We're going to send out booklets. They're going to have a truncated morning and evening prayer, as well as daily lessons, as well as how to read the Psalms. And I really want to encourage people to be invited into praying the daily office by yourself or with your family, so that you can get this depth and breadth and beauty of not only our worship, but of Scripture. And so we've we've been working on this little book, um, as well as with George, and Daniel's going to get dragged into it as well. so that we can invite all of you into this. And so that's why we're looking at the Psalms, is so when you pray those Psalms on a daily basis, you have a deeper understanding of what you're praying. So you can think back and be like, oh, remember how Father Ian said this or that about this thing? I wonder what that means in this specific context. So that's the introduction to what we're going to be doing for the next two months. So now let us dive into Psalm 145, which we prayed this morning. Before we get into the nitty-gritty of it, one of the things that we miss when we have a translation of the Psalms is the fact that the Psalm is is acrostic. 
Now you maybe know what that means and you're like, oh, that's really cool. I'm too bad I can't see that. But at least one of you is shaking your head, no, I have no idea what that means. So that's good because you're about to find out. The, the example that I could think of that I'm pretty sure everybody knows is that song Love and the, the, the chorus is L is for the way you look at me, O is for the only one, I'm not going to sing it, sorry. <laughs> the only one I see, V is very, very extraordinary, and E is even more than anyone can adore, which the E one is kind of weak, by the way, but you see how each letter spells out love, right? So that's what an acrostic is. The, the first letter of each line spells out something. In this case, it's not actually spelling out something, but it contains the first letter of each line, the first letter of each verse in the, initial, in the original manuscript is the Hebrew alphabet. So it goes, if it, if it was in, in English, it would be A and then B and then C and then D, which is not directly relevant to how Hebrew goes, but for our understanding, that's, that's what you need to know. So it just works its way through the Hebrew alphabet. You might be wondering, or maybe you're like, oh, that's cool. That's a nice tidbit. Why would somebody do this? <clears throat> Hopefully you're wondering that. Hopefully you are getting more curious about scripture. But if not, that's okay. <clears throat> There's probably a couple reasons that they did this. The first one is just that it makes it easier to memorize, right? So if you, you know, when you were in, in, in college, if you're trying to memorize, like, genus, species, so on and so forth, you kind of made up a little mnemonic, and then you remember, oh, this is how it works. And so they, they would remember A, and do, 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 B, do, 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 and so on and so forth. But I think David might actually be doing something deeper here. I think David is actually trying to show the totality of the worthiness of God to be praised. And that's really what he keeps pointing back to, that God is worthy of our praise. And so by giving each line a letter of the alphabet, he shows from A to Z, if you will, it's, that's not quite how the alphabet works, but let's go with it for now. From A to Z, God is worthy to be praised. He is completely worthy to be praised. And so David starts this psalm personal. He says, I will extol my God and my king. He shows how God is his king, even though he's king of Israel. God is sovereign even over him and over every king in the world. He shows the psalm that God is to be trusted. And as we move forward into the New Testament and think about who Christ reveals himself to be, Martin Luther came up with a little, little ditty, if you will, that Christ is prophet, peace, priest, and king. And of course, this psalm emphasizes that kingliness of Christ, the kingliness of God over us, and we have to slow down here and think for a moment because it's really important. Are we grounding ourselves? Are you grounding yourselves in the belief that Christ is your king? Are you trusting earthly authorities over Christ? Or are you denying that Christ has authority even in those awful hours of your day, even in those times when you struggle, even in the times when things are glorious and wonderful? Are there times that you wonder if Christ is really king? Or perhaps you're trying to be your own sovereign. But David is pointing us to the fact that God, for us as Christians, Christ in God, is king. And therefore, he is worthy of your praise. But not just your praise. He is worthy of all people's praises. As we move along, verse 4 in our, our little handout reads, 
One generation shall commend your works to another. And they, they capture the idea that David is getting at, that we are to tell the next generation, this is who God is and this is why he is worthy to be praised. But believe it or not, our really, really old Psalter, which is the Coverdale Psalter, and it's probably about 500 years old, give or take a couple decades, gets it a little more right than our more modern translation. Or maybe you believe that because you hate modernity, which is fine. Um, But the Coverdale Psalter actually really brings this out really well because it says that you will praise the Lord's name from one generation to another. And that's really what David is trying to get at. And we kind of like commend because it kind of tells us, hey, we need to instruct people in this. But think about praising people in this, using praise as instruction. If we lived our lives as lives of praise, think about what that would look like. How would it affect your your closest relationships, your relationship with your spouses, your relationship with your children, whether they're at home or grown up and moved out? How would that affect your relationship with them? How would it affect your relationship with your neighbors? How would living your life as praise to God affect how you relate to the guy that cuts you off on the road? Think about that. This, of course, does not free us from the necessity of evangelizing. It does not free us from the necessity of catechizing new believers. It does not free us from the necessity of discipling one another that we would grow in Christ. But at the center of these actions is still praise. Evangelism isn't simply a duty that Christ has called us to. Catechism isn't simply a duty. Discipleship isn't simply a duty. But it is an act of praise. And David continues on. Not only are we called to praise, each other, praise God to one another, but we are called to meditate, that is to think upon deeply in a way that changes our hearts and minds, the works that God has done. Of course, this psalm goes on eventually to spell out some of the works that he had done, and we know the pinnacle of his work. That is that our paschal song that Christ has died for our sins, that Christ is risen to raise us from the dead, and that Christ will come, us, come again to finally usher us into the kingdom of heaven. What if, that cha- what if we meditate? What if we think deeply upon that and allow it to change our lives? And then we reach the peak. I know at least some of you hike, and I know at least some of you have missed church because you went for too aggressive of a hike the day before. But there's something about hiking and reaching the top of a mountain, right? At least most of us know that experience from some point in our life, and we get to the top, and all of a sudden, we have this amazing vista, we know this experience. If you, if you can't hike anymore and you, you've driven up to one of the overlooks that kind of looks down upon our beautiful city, you just see, oh, yeah, we live in an incredibly beautiful place. We reach this top, and we reach the top of this psalm in verses, um, <clears throat> we reach the top of the psalm in verses 8 and 9. 
And it reads along this line. The Lord is gracious and merciful, long-suffering and of great goodness. The Lord is loving unto every man, and his mercy is over all his works. And this, this hangs the whole psalm. This is the center point. This is that beautiful vista that we've worked our way up to, and suddenly everything opens up. We praise God because this is who he is. We praise God, we adore God, we worship God because his works are good, his works are beautiful. At the very center of it, we worship God because this is his very nature. Because of who he is, he is worthy to be praised. Now, there are many, many, many benefits of knowing Christ, in knowing God through Christ, in being transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. But at the center of all of this is still the fact that we know, we worship, we serve a God who is slow, who is gracious and merciful, who is long-suffering, that is, who is patient, whose works are of great, great goodness. We worship a Lord who is loving unto every person, whose mercy is over all his works. And now we start our trek back to the bottom of the psalm. David states that all the works of God shall give him thanks. I was reading, I started reading a book this week, and and the author was writing probably 40 years ago, I think. I think it was written in the 70s or 80s. And he's writing about how we live in this material age and how that really kind of messes with our minds. And of course, we know in the academy or in popular culture, nothing contains anything that's mystical. Nothing contains anything that's spiritual. Everything is very rational and ordered. And we might be like, well, good thing we're here. Well, good thing you are here. I am very glad that all of you are here. But here's some bad news. It's, it's very easy for this materialistic type thinking to, to slip into how we think. Whether you know it or not, there's a pretty good chance that you do look at the world materialistically. Perhaps, and the example I want to use is a rock. If you pick up a rock, perhaps you just think, well, this is just a rock, some collection of carbon and a bunch of other material kind of slammed together and there it is. That's nice, and you drop it, and that's the end of that rock. But think about what Christ says about the rocks. Does anybody know where I'm going with this? It's okay if you don't. Think about the triumphal entry into into Jerusalem. And the Pharisees say to Jesus, these people think you're king. Stop, stop them from, from praising you. And Jesus responds really interestingly. I tell you, if these people were silent, the very stones, that rock you picked up, would cry out. We, we talked about last week, and, and I can't reiterate this enough, that creation was made by God but knows God, not in some sort of weird way, but God created it good, and creation in some way, shape, or form proclaims this goodness to the world. So if all of us just shut up and never said anything else about God ever again, Creation wouldn't. 
Creation would proclaim the goodness of the Lord to each and every person that saw it. St. Paul reiterates this, so, so you know I'm not just picking one little verse and saying, here you go, here's some major piece of theology. St. Paul reiterates this to us in Romans as he talks about how all of creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. He's saying all of creation is groaning for the day that Christ returns so that it can be made new, so that it can be made into what it once was, the goodness that the Lord created created it in. My friends, the material world is good and it is important. First and foremost, because God created it. We don't really have to, we could just stop there and that would be sufficient. But there's more. It is good because the world will be returned to its good state when Christ returns. The world will be made new And the faded glory that we see in the beauty of the trees or in the rocks that proclaim God's goodness will be in its full goodness yet again. Right after I was in college, I had this really horrible season of depression. And I remember where I was living, there was a Norwegian pine. I don't, it's really weird that I know it was a Norwegian pine. I don't really know why I know that or anything along that lines, but I was just enamored with that tree. It was just, to me, the most beautiful tree that I had ever seen. I, don't ask me again why. I just, I just thought that was the most beautiful tree. And in that depression, in that sorrow, the tree somehow reminded me, day in and day out, that God created the world beautiful and was therefore worthy of my praise, even though the only point I was seeing that beauty in that season was in that tree, it grounded me in that moment of creation, in that fact that what God had done was good and beautiful. And so David reiterates that very point. David says that he makes known to us God's mighty deeds. This shows us again that we should praise the Lord. When I was in seminary, I had two professors who were experts in the field of what's called textual criticism. Don't worry, I'm not going to belabor that point too much. But they always made us do textual criticism assignments. And one day, like on one of the last ones that we had to do, a friend and I were talking, and I'm like, I honestly never even really thought much about text criticism when I'm preparing. But I did this week. If you go to verse 13 on your little handout, it's not in, it's not in um, the Coverdale Psalter, and I'll explain why in just a second. You'll notice a little bracket. And if you were paying attention, you might be like, well, why is there a little bracket there? That's really strange. That's because the base text, the standard text that that most of the Western church uses to translate the the Psalms and and all of the Old Testament omits that one little verse. However, it's found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, which I think probably most of you have heard of, in the Septuagint, which if you haven't heard of that, that's the Greek translation of the Old Testament, as well as in the ancient Syriac translation of the Old Testament. So it's found in a few places 
And so that's why the, the ESV translators decided to add it. And honestly, when they were going through to prep this for the Coverdale Psalter, I don't think Coverdale had uh, access to it. <clears throat> so that's what that, that indicates. And if, if we, we skip over this, what happens is it actually drops the end line. So my conclusion is probably this is the original text, and for whatever reason, the, the, the base text that we use in the West omitted this. So why am I telling you this? This is probably really boring. I don't know, maybe not. Maybe it's really fascinating. Um, <clears throat> it's, it's because you'll notice when you're sitting at home reading scripture, every now and again there'll be a little footnote and it'll say, you know, some texts omit this word or some texts have this word instead of this word. And you might wonder, like, well, why is that even there? Don't we, isn't this pretty uniform? And the answer to that question is really yes. Our, our ancient texts of scripture are surprisingly uniform. When you think about how many there are, that these were all copied by hand, and just how ancient they are, um, they're very, very uniform. But sometimes people see these and they freak out and they're like, oh my gosh, we can't trust scripture. You can trust scripture. They're trying to be transparent. They're trying to show what's going on there. And the, and the little notes that they make when they, they're important enough to be put in, if you think about that, if you slow down and pause and think about, well, what does it mean if this word or this word is there? It doesn't really end up changing our understanding of who God is, who Christ is, or anything else along that lines. And so the reason that I point this out today is just to reiterate the fact that you can trust Scripture. It is still authoritative. It is still understandable. It is still readable. It is still something that we can base our life off of. If you want to talk more about this, I'd be happy to, but I know that at least some of you are like, oh, please stop. And that's fine. <laughs> As we get closer to the end, David proceeds to tell us all the good and gracious works that the Lord has done. And these kind of echo, right, or the Sermon on the Mount really echoes these, especially the Beatitudes. And they give us hope and remind us of all that we've been saying, that God is worthy of our praise. They remind us that no matter where you are, that God in Christ is your hope. God in Christ is your hope in the dark nights of your souls. God in Christ is your hope in the valleys of death. God in Christ points us to something better in the depth of our heartache. So take heart. The psalm started with a personal statement by David. I will extol, I will praise God my king. And he ends likewise, but he adds something to this. After he says, my mouth will speak of thy praise, O Lord, he finishes with let all flesh. Bless his holy name forever and ever. David recognizes that all of creation, everything that has breath, not just you and I, but everything that has breath will praise the Lord. And this gives us a foretaste of the final thing, the final thing that is coming one day. <clears throat> that one day, Every tongue will confess that God is Lord. Every day, one tongue will confess that Christ is Lord and Savior. But you don't have to wait for that day. Today, whatever, wherever you are, 
whether you're in a valley or a mountaintop, whether you're in heartache or joy, you may live your life to the glory, glorifying God and enjoying him forever, but also today. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost.